Amen. Friends, I want to invite you now to take your Bibles and to turn to the book of Philippians in the New Testament. This is where we're going to begin not just our time together this morning in the few minutes that we have, but our life together as Edgefield Church. And as you're turning over to Philippians, I want to take just a moment to share why we thought this letter would be a great place to begin our life together and why this first chapter works so well for what we're celebrating together this morning. The simple answer is that at the core of this letter, this letter is about friendship. It's about what it looks like to have Jesus at the center of your relationships with one another in the local church. That's what it's about. There's more here. You'll find other topics that we'll cover as we come verse by verse through this letter, and we trust the Lord has much to teach us in it. But the central thread, if you pull it, the thread that ties together this beautiful letter is a thread of Christ-centered unity in a local church. You know, some of Paul's letters are almost like theological textbooks. You know, they're really careful, line-by-line explanations of who God is and what He's done. And we, by all means, need letters like, like Romans, for example. Philippians is not like that at all. Barely teaches any doctrine. He mostly just assumes they're on the same page about Jesus already. Other letters pack what you might call a, a, a wallop of a punch. In some letters, like, like Galatians, for example, Paul is going to battle. Because he believes that the gospel is at stake and that people are in danger of losing it. Some sharp language in that letter that I'll leave you to find for yourselves. Philippians is not like that at all. In fact, he's basically gushing the whole way through. Over and over, almost every page, you'll find him talking about rejoicing and joy and rejoicing and joy. That word just keeps coming over and over. And he's got good reason to be happy. Friendships with Christ at the center of them are worthy of this sort of rejoicing. And this letter is a letter about the beauty of a church that's unified around who Jesus is to them. Friends, that's what we want to be. In a way, it's a celebration of and a guide to precisely what we're hoping to do by joining together as one church. We want to build relationships here that show our neighbors the beauty of Jesus. And from the opening verses of this letter, I want us to consider one question this morning. What will it look like for us to have Jesus at the center of our friendships as a church? What will it look like for us to have Jesus at the center of our friendships as a church? And I want to give you three things from these opening verses. I first want to to read them for you. And I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you're able, in honor of God's Word, while I read Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. This is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is God's word. 
You can be seated. What will it look like for us to have Jesus at the center of our friendships as a church? Point number one, we'll share one identity. We'll share one identity. Did you notice in the first couple of verses, Paul's opening his letter, he's giving this typical greeting that you'd use to, to start a letter, you know, the way we start an email with, hey, what's up? Happy New Year. Hope you're hanging in there these days. Like, There's some typical forms that he, that he lumps in. It's just a normal greeting. But, but he makes it his own with an almost redundant use of the name of Jesus. Did you notice that? Over and over it comes. Just a couple of verses, several mentions of it. This is the kind of writing that, that, you know, if you turn this into your English teacher in high school, it'd come back to you with just red ink all over. Like, find some new words. Maybe vary your vocabulary a little bit. Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus, verse 1. He's writing to the saints in Christ Jesus, verse 1. Grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2. Paul's repeating himself, but it's no accident. He means to repeat himself because he gives us a clue in these first couple verses that's pointing to us to what's coming in the rest of the letter. At the center of this greeting, he tells us who he's writing to. And he names them as the saints, the holy ones in Christ Jesus. Holy ones, God's people in Christ. There's the phrase. That phrase is going to come up 21 times in the short little four chapters of this letter. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Over and over, he'll hit this note. That's not because Paul got lazy. It's because he wanted to beat it into us. See, for Paul, what we share in common What unites us on a deeper level than anything that separates us is the fact that we are in Christ. Paul's talking about what defines them. He's talking about the identity that they share with one another. I wonder, how do you introduce yourself to other people? If you've got a Facebook or a Twitter profile, you know, there's that little section under the name or the handle where you can just enter like little bursts of words or phrases that, that announce yourself to the world. What's on your list, I wonder? Maybe it reads dad or grandmother, teacher, student, Titans fan, coffee lover. I love that one. People always put coffee lover in there. Who doesn't love coffee? Yeah, coffee's great. Of course, you're a coffee lover. Maybe for you, it's your, uh, maybe it's your, your personality definition of choice. You know, I-N-F-J-L-M-N-O-P, whatever whatever the right letters are for you. I don't know. What's on your list? What do you want others to know about you? Well, Paul has a list. Actually, later in this letter, chapter 3, Paul, Paul tells us exactly what his list was before he came to Jesus. He says in chapter 3 that if anybody had any reason to brag about themselves, he had more reason. And then comes what, what looks a little bit like a, a, a Twitter bio. Circumcised on the eighth day. Israelite. From the tribe of Benjamin, that's one of the better tribes. You wanted to be from one like that. Hebrew of Hebrews. Pharisee, he says. Blameless. That's a good list. That may not mean much to us. You might not look great if you put that in your bio today. But back then, that was an enviable list. It's a list people wanted. They aspired to. It's the kind of list they assumed you needed if you wanted God to look on you with favor. 
But Paul says that that list, that list was mine. Now it's torn to shreds, burned up, rubbish. He continues in chapter three. Whatever gain I had, that whole list, that way I would have identified myself to you. Whatever gain I had, he writes, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, Paul says, slipping street, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That whole list belongs in the trash pan. Why? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, in Christ. Here, Paul's telling us what he means. When he writes to the Philippians as those who are saints in Christ, here in chapter three, he tells us what he means. What's he saying? In Christ, I have a righteousness not of my own. I'm not good enough because I kept all the right laws. I have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. When Paul writes this letter to saints in Christ, he's writing to them and, and to us as if we know what he knows. As if we know, as he knows, that nothing about who we are can compare to who he is for us or who we are in him. It's all rubbish compared to knowing him. The best of it is just filthy rags compared to the righteousness we find in him. In him, we pass through death to sin and into life. That's his. We come to the end of ourselves and we find his perfect righteousness on the other side. So now he's everything. We're holy ones, not because of anything we did. We're among God's people, not because we earned our spot here. We're holy, not because of church attendance or volunteering or our political views or how our kids turned out or anything else. We're holy only ever in Christ. And here's the beautiful thing about friendship in Christ. Here's the thing we need for this morning. When Jesus is what you notice about yourself, you'll notice him in other people too. Even when there are a lot of other things you may not share. See, some of us here in this room are relatively young. And some of us are relatively old. Some of us are relatively rich. And some of us are relatively poor. Some of us have advanced degrees and some of us haven't finished high school yet. Some of us grew up around here. And some of us come from the other side of the world. Some of us come from Edgefield Baptist and some of us come from Trinity Church. And on the surface, if what we're talking about is Twitter profile material, we may not share very much. But friends, we share what matters, don't we? We are saints in Christ. We have nothing good apart from him. Through him, we have everything we need for life and godliness. If we keep him front and center, if we prize him above anything else, then what we're gonna do, we will recognize him in one another. And that's gonna draw us to each other. 
If we see Jesus in each other, every single one of us is going to feel at home here. We need that shared identity this morning, don't we? I mean, I know some of you are here in this beautiful building, maybe even in awe of the great beauty of it, maybe here for the first time this morning, and it's beautiful, and you love it, but it feels like you're visiting somebody else's house. Others of you are sitting in here in this building that's more familiar to you, maybe even than your own house, because you grew up here. You've been here every Sunday since the 1950s for some of you. I know that. But now it's full of people you don't know very well, if at all. And doesn't feel quite like family yet. In some ways, it's true that it isn't familiar to us. And we're going to have to work against that. And we're going to have to give it time. But we can be confident that we will get there. Because we see Christ in one another. And that's enough. That is enough. Friends, if, if you don't consider yourself yet to be in Christ, if you're here this morning wondering what's going on in this church, in the neighborhood, or because you were invited by a friend and you're still evaluating who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Maybe the, the, the way I've just defined Jesus and what it means to be in him is new to you. doesn't sound like what you're expecting. If that's you, I want you to know that you can be in Christ today. You can have him and with him, you can have a place in this church. Nothing else has to change about you. Nobody here is waiting to see if you can make the cut. There are no tests you have to pass. There are no pasts that you have to clean up. There's no reason for you to hang your head. No reason for you to hang back from the rest of us. All we're looking for in one another is Jesus. Are you in Christ? Is Christ your only hope in life and in death? Is Christ your source of forgiveness? Is he what you trust to account for the wrong you've done? Are you desperate enough to know better than to think you can measure up on your own. If that's you, Jesus welcomes you here this morning. And because Jesus welcomes you here, we welcome you here. And we would love the chance to talk to you more about what it means to follow him. If our friendships are centered on Jesus, we'll share an identity. Much more quickly now, friends, I wanna point you to two other things that we'll share. If our friendships are centered on Jesus, we'll share also one purpose. Paul goes here in verse 3 of chapter 1. Or excuse me, uh, yeah, yeah, verse 3 of chapter 1, the next couple of verses after that. He tells his friends in verse 3 why he's so thankful for them. He's basically gushing. Look at these verses with me again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. He's gushing over them. Why is he so happy? What's he grateful for? Look look at verse 5. It tells us, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This right here, Philippians, this is a church on a mission. And it's Paul's mission. And it's their mission. And it's our mission. Friends, we represent Christ in the world. That's what we're here for. Behind this word partnership is is something like a financial partnership, a a business venture, like like two guys working together to start up a new company. It's more than just buddies hanging out that he has in mind here. In other words, this is a purpose-driven friendship. He means they're aiming their lives at the same goals. And, And every deep and meaningful friendship has something like this. It's more than just enjoying each other's company. Uh, uh, the deepest and most meaningful friendships are going to have some sort of shared passion that guides what you do together. And that's true for every healthy church, too. Every church has to have a, a, a passion, a shared purpose that's driving the relationships within it. 
Over the past few months, I have deeply enjoyed learning more and more about the history of Edgefield Baptist Church, which is now extended for 153 years. One moment in that history has been especially striking to me so far. In 1907, uh, Edgefield Baptist Church gathered right here. It sat right where you're sitting to celebrate the opening and dedication of this beautiful building. It had just been completed and they wanted to do it right. So they, had a, they invited one of the most prominent pastors in the country to come and give the dedication sermon. He was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, a man by the name of George Truitt, uh, who apparently had family as part of the founding members of this church. So Truitt stood right here where I'm standing. And he preached a sermon that you probably would expect at a dedication of a building. He, he celebrated the sacrifices that went into it, the fact that people shared their money, the fact that they had put their blood, blood and sweat and tears into what was already a 40-plus year history as a congregation. He celebrated all the things that should be in a day like that. But at the climax of his message, he said this, a church that is not a missionary church cannot thrive. It's a doomed church. Think about that with me. Here they are celebrating completion of, a, of an amazing facility. What took all the money, all the blood, all the sweat, all the tears they could muster. And at the climactic moment of this celebration, Truett's basically telling them, hey guys, great building, love what you did with the place, but this ain't the mission. Not here, don't forget that. Don't forget, your, your life together is about something more. And what I love most about that moment and about the history of this church is that those, those faithful saints, they heard him. They took his point. And just a year later, in 1908, with this building and the responsibility that it was on their shoulders now, and as a growing congregation, bringing more and more people into their membership, just a year later, they pooled their resources and sent their first international missionary all the way to the other side of the world, to China on behalf of this church. That's the legacy of Edgefield Baptist Church. And that's been the legacy of Trinity Church too. For 10 years, you guys had no place to call home. Didn't press pause though. Didn't pull all your resources and wait until you could find somewhere more permanent. You got busy with the business of the kingdom. You sent mission, members as missionaries all over the world and gave away your money to local ministries all around our city and contributed to new local churches. Our churches have been about the gospel, not ourselves, from the first day until now. And today, we give thanks because that partnership is what draws us together here. More than anything, we want to make the goodness and beauty of Jesus visible to our neighbors and around the world. We want them to see what we've seen in Jesus so that he gets the glory that he deserves. And what we celebrate today now as one church is just another step in the precious partnership in the gospel that we've always had. The same partnership that Paul made, that made him so grateful for the Philippians. If our relationships center on Jesus, we'll share an identity. We'll share one purpose. And finally, friends, as we close, we'll share one hope. We'll share one hope. This hope is the key. It's the foundation up under our identity in Christ it's what drives our partnership with the gospel. And without it, everything else comes crumbling down to the ground. Our hope and the reason we're so excited today, the reason we're here joyful and not fearful as we face our shared future is that the God who begins good work in his people always finishes what he starts. Always. Look with me at what Paul says in verse 6. 
I am sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love his confidence here. When he writes to this church to encourage them, he takes them all the way to the end, to where it's all going, to the day of Jesus Christ when he returns for his bride and makes all things new. He's looking ahead to the end game of their life as a church and the end game for every local church that's ever been, including ours. He knows they're going to make it. And that's not because they're some sort of perfect church. Like they've passed some sort of test we still might fail. This church has problems. He's going to be writing about some of these problems later in the letter. They don't necessarily get along with each other that well. They're, They're not crazy about one another at every turn. They have issues, as we do. But he's still confident about what they'll become. Why? Because he knows who's working in them. He's not not confident in them. He's confident in the God who made them his own. The God who's using them to bring glory to himself. He knows this church is God's work. And we, Edgefield Church, right here this morning, we are God's work. Friends, we need this reminder today. Each of our churches, we've carefully walked the road that's brought us to this point. We've, we've talked, we've prayed, we've planned. We've pushed back and forth, back and forth over important issues that we needed to hash out together. And these meetings and prayer and conversation have come with not a little bit of apprehension for all of us. Of course we felt that way. We knew that a merger like this one would be change for all of us. And change is hard. Especially when the thing that's changing is precious to you as precious as our two churches have been to us. And we want so badly to see this work for everybody. We want this church to be a blessing to all of us and a boost to the mission that we share in our city. And we know that the outcome is more than we can accomplish for ourselves. No matter how hard we've worked and prayed or how carefully we've thought through or talked through everything. On top of all of that, guys, we're joining together in the midst of a really, really tough time for all of us. This awful virus is putting up barriers to us getting to know each other quickly. It's adding a thick layer of weird to the things that we are able to do together, like like come here into this room right now and, and worship together. The culture around us is bitterly divided on all sorts of important issues. The economy is struggling, and I could go on. These are not the best of times. We have to be honest about that. How can we know that what we're doing together today is going to work? How can we be confident that our church will thrive. Honestly, guys, if, if it depends on us, if our future is on our shoulders, we really shouldn't be that confident. We have good reasons to be concerned. But our hope has never been and is not now in ourselves. It's not in what's familiar to us. It's not in a vaccine is not in a stable or hospitable culture around us. Our hope, our only hope, is in the God who works in us to bring us all the way to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 153 years ago, a handful of folks from this neighborhood first joined together to form Edgefield Baptist Church. They met in a rented building on the other side of East Park from where we sit right now. Just on the other side, not standing anymore, was a building called Stubbs Hall, a Masonic Lodge that was open for rental, for gatherings like theirs. They were a church plant. They didn't have any building of their own. 
They were renting space for worship Sunday after Sunday. They, did, they didn't have much, but they had one another. And they had Jesus between them. And God began a work in them that he has carried on for 153 years. That is mind-blowing. And then 10 years ago, in another public rented space just on the other side of the city, another group of friends met together to form Trinity Church, to worship together, to celebrate communion together, to covenant with one another as another church plant in this city we love. Many of us called that auditorium home for 10 wonderful years. We set up and tore down every chair we had. We did it week after week, and we did it with a smile on our face. We shared Jesus with one another week after week, and God kept us in faith year after year, doing far more than we even knew to ask of Him. And now, now here we are at this new chapter, knowing that today is not marking some ending, Friends, today doesn't even really mark a beginning. Today, we celebrate the continuation of the gospel work God has been doing in us all along. And our confidence now is the same confidence that it's always been. I, I, I want us to just agree right here, right now, to hang verse 6 over our church and whatever becomes of us. As a banner over this day and this year and whatever else may become of Edgefield Church. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, God always finishes what he begins. Nothing gets in his way. We have nothing to fear because we hope in him. Our fate isn't hanging in the balance. It can feel that way sometimes, especially in years like this one. Our fate is not hanging in the balance. We rest securely in his hands and he has already told us what he's doing the end is not in question ultimately our horizon stretches far beyond this beautiful building or this corner or this city or even these fleeting and brief lives that we're living right now our horizon stretches all the way to the day of jesus christ when he returns to take his bride for his own and to make all things new that's where we're headed. And whatever this next year or this next hundred years may hold in store for our church, we share this one hope. We will get there. And Lord willing, many more with us. Because God will carry us all the way. Let's pray now that he will do what he's promised. Father, we come to you as our only hope. Confident because you have spoken. And because when you speak, you always deliver. We trust you with this precious church and ask you to use us to bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.